3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Melbourne. Uh, my name is Jackson. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, 855 on your radio dial. I'm flying solo this morning, apart from our producer Gab out the back as well, but James is on a well-earned break, and Will, as you, our listeners would know, has moved over to Wednesday to make some amazing radio over there. So it's just me guiding you through your Monday morning. It's pretty cold outside. I'm not going to pretend I've looked at the exact degree. I just wake up each morning and think, it's still winter, and it is outside. I got up in the dark, and I'll probably go home in the dark. Long days. But hey, it's nice to be here in the warm studio. I've got a stack of newspapers, and we've got a pretty full show. Um, you know, thanks to uh, James. Even though he's on holidays, he did record some interviews before he went away. So, big shout out to James for doing that. Much appreciated. So, first up this morning at about quarter past seven, after we have a brief alternative news. We'll be hearing from Jerry Emus, who's the president of the AFL Fans Association. Now, a lot of listeners would know that the AFL, unlike a lot of sports around the world, has a very mixed audience, a uh, very high female participation rate in the audience. But the continued commercial commercialization of the game um, has led to some issues for fans, and Jerry speaks to James about that. Uh, then at 7.30, around about, we'll be hearing from Emmett, who's a member of the Rideshare Drivers Cooperative, uh, which is a newly set up organisation. And he's chatting to James about why they've set up this cooperative, why it's necessary. We've obviously covered some of the issues facing uh, rider drivers, you know, Uber and Deliveroo and Uber Eats, these types of things across the show in previous weeks. So that'll be out on at around 7.30. Uh, and then at 7.50, we'll have our regular segment, Over the Wall. Uh, this week, Peter Davis from Over the Wall looks at what life is like for people in the trial areas of the cashless welfare card, you know, one of the most draconian and um, controlling efforts by the federal government to, uh, in their continuing what, what I would describe as a war on the poor, um, you know, to make, to essentially... Uh, limit what people can spend their their money on if they are uh, receiving social services from the government. So Over the Wall for new listeners is a weekly look at the barriers to social support and safety nets from the perspective of those most affected, the people who work in the industry, the people who receive social services and the advocates who support those people. Uh, At 8 o'clock we'll be joined in the studio by a guest, uh, a man named Sam Quinlan. Uh, Sam heads up the Hotham Mission's Food for Thought program, which delivers food to children before school um, because trying to go to school without breakfast is a pretty uh, terrible thing to do. So he's loving that work. But for the previous 10 years, Sam had worked in a 
you know, a list of of well-known Melbourne hospitality institutions, places like Mario's and the Grace Darling and some really high-end restaurants, Long Chin, at Crown, things like that as well. And he's going to have a chat with us about uh, some of the culture in these restaurants uh, and the culture in the hospitality industry in general, which has been in the news a lot recently as we start to hear revelations of even, you know, some of the most prominent uh, hoteliers and restaurateurs dramatically underpaying staff. Um, wage theft is, you know, according to Hospo Voice and other um, hospitality unions, you know, rife across the industry. Um, I'm sure the NUW and other organizations would say the same thing. So we're going to hear from Sam about that. And then we're going to close out the show at quarter past eight. Um, a wonderful interview that James McKenzie from In Your Face did with Alison Thorne, who's a veteran uh, LGBTQI liberationist, uh, talking about how to how exactly do radical socialist feminists support something as mainstream as marriage? You know, so looking back at the uh, same-sex marriage debate and talking about uh, approaches to it from a radical perspective. Uh, so that's our program for the morning. Uh, I hope you stay with us and listen to it. Um, and up next is alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. So one story that I wanted to raise uh, is a story coming out of the United States at the moment, um, and I need to shout out to Ayan from Tuesday Breakfast, who makes amazing radio every week, um, because she posted this story on Twitter. Um, I'm not sure whether she's planning to talk about it tomorrow morning. If she is, I apologize. But um, it is following the the story of children being separated from families in the United States as part of Trump's crackdown on immigrant families. And this is a story that was originally broken by a woman named Aura Bogado um, in uh, revealnews.org. And it's a story claiming that these children, you know, so distraught after being separated from their their families and uh, put into detention centres, essentially, are being subdued with powerful psychiatric drugs. So this is on a as I say, a website called revealnews.org. There's been some confusion about how the story originally broke, which is what Ayan was commenting on Twitter as well. Um, Aurora, Aura Bogado, I should say, has written on Twitter that people like me very rarely have the opportunity to do this kind of investigative work and we've worked our butts off to get to to get this story first and to get this story right. And I think other people have been kind of claiming that the story you know, more mainstream journalists and whatnot have been um, running the story uh, with different uh, publications and or is calling for, um, you know, 
her name to be credited um, for the story. So I just wanted to make that really clear that the story was broken by her. Um, and the story is that these children at the being held at the Shiloh Treatment Centre, which is a government contractor south of Houston that houses immigrant minors that have been separated from their families, uh, have described being held down and injected, according to federal court findings. Uh, the lawsuit alleges that children were told they would not be released or see their parents unless they took medication in the form of these injections and that they were only receiving vitamins. Parents and the children themselves told attorneys that the drugs rendered them unable to walk, afraid of people, and wanting to sleep constantly, according to affidavits filed on April 23rd this year in the U.S. District Court in California. One mother said her child fell repeatedly, hitting her head, and ended up in a wheelchair. A child described trying to open a window and being hurled against a door by a Shiloh supervisor, who then choked her until she fainted. So, I mean, this story just goes on. It is... um just a horrendous concept that um, children already being denied their basic freedoms are then being um, uh, sedated or um, controlled, you know, using psychotropic substances. Um, The fact that it's happening to incredibly marginalised people already, children that are inside uh, government detention facilities or holding centres, you know, it just... I mean, the, the list of drugs that are um, have been prescribed to these children, they're listed as antipsychotic drugs, Latuda, Geodon, Olazapine, the Parkinson's medication, Benzotropine, the seizure medications, Clonazepam and Divilproex, the nerve pain medication and antidepressant, Duloxetine, and the cognition enhancer, Guanfacine. In terms of the age of the children, is not specified but i'm imagining they are young from the way their parents are talking about their physical behavior um yeah just it it is just an incredibly shocking story Uh, and i recommend you check it out online that's uh, at revealnews.org and it's a blog post there immigrant children forcibly injected with drugs uh we will have a look at some of the papers here in Melbourne this morning since I need to speak to newspapers as I don't have anyone else to speak to. I just speak to you, our dear listener out there, our 3CR audience. And to save you looking at the little paper here in Melbourne, I can say that the front page is devoted to Stopping people stealing petrol, high-tech cameras to scan number plates in a bid to stop petrol thieves, uh, scourge on society. I thought the petrol thieves were OPEC and the people who sell petrol at a cartel-like inflated price. In fact, uh, I know that the uh, ACCC are doing some research at the moment into cartel uh, behaviour in the Northern Territory with price fixing around petrol. So yeah, I think it's a little a little rich as 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 normal. The uh, Herald Sun punching down instead of punching up and looking at people who perhaps are just putting a few liters in their car and 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 keeping on getting around to you know perhaps their perhaps their cashless welfare card isn't working. I'm not sure. Uh, what else have we got? Ah, interestingly, uh, in relation to something we were talking about last week in the distance between the AFL's public 
facing uh, social justice efforts and some of their uh, internal machinations uh, in terms of their race relations. It looks like that uh, former great Nicky Winmar is a man is among a group of uh, retired AFL players planning to launch legal action against the AFL. This is related to the way that they deal with uh, concussion, or they used to deal with concussion. There is a lot of um, players involved in this um, lawsuit, uh, including John Platten and John Barnes. Um, and you know, it's a story that we've heard before, but these are ongoing impacts that we have. That's fairly close in the little paper. Um, it looks like people are confused by Albanese's pro-business speech. Uh, Bill Shorten says a speech on Friday by his one-time leadership rival, or, you know, still leadership rival perhaps, Anthony Albanese, did not cause any offence at all, and they had had an amicable chat since. This is an interesting take on the, the normal read of the Shorten Albanese Divide. I would have thought that Bill has a reputation of being more um, friendly with the businesses that he has negotiated with over the years. But uh, this is saying that apparently it's uh, Albo, um, DJ Albo, who's rubbing up a little too closely to the business community, but Shorten has forgiven him. So that's, that's good that they've come to... There is a lot of coverage of the rally yesterday um, that took place in the Surgeon's uh, Gardens. Uh, just across from Trades Hall there. Um, scuffles, of course, they focus in the little paper with the scuffles that broke out rather than the issues that were being protested. Scuffles broke out in the Melbourne CBD as police tried to separate far-right protesters and anti-racism supporters yesterday. That's a really interesting use of language, anti-racism supporters. I think you could just call them anti-racists or anti-fascists. I'm not sure whether anti-racism is a position that you can support. It seems like a kind of negative turn into a, a positive. Uh, and you could call the far right racists or fascists in this context as well, considering the language and behaviour that comes out of um, organisations like the UPF and the True Blue Crew. And that was who was meeting yesterday. It was the True Blue Crew. Uh, are the about seventy people watched up, uh, rocked up for the True Blue Crew, and the uh, Herald Sun is saying more than one hundred and fifty opposed them. I I'm guessing that's an under uh, estimation by the little paper there. Uh, a very quick look at the Financial Review. Oh, they're talking about raising interest rates. It's time to do that. And a couple of diplomats are heading to Asia to find new investment opportunities. Good for them. And according to The Age, also a little paper nowadays, uh, we have a front page about Turnbull taking a hit over the tax plan clash. I was shocked last week um, when our progressive tax system uh, began to be dismantled. Um, I can't believe the kind of, you know, middle-of-the-road milk toast responses to the... Um, erosion of what is, you know, one of the core underpinnings of a functioning uh, liberal democracy, which is a progressive tax system, I would argue, one of the great socialist ideas that those who are earning a lot more should contribute 
more to the reign of society and those that are struggling should be supported by society to get through their lives. Um, but apparently someone on 40000 and someone on $180,000 a year, they need to be taxed the same moving forwards. And apparently that's a great thing. It's just helping aspirational Australians. You know, I think it's shocking. But apparently Australian voters are have turned a little on Turnbull. Um, taking a hit, his approval rating has gone down by 1% and his disapproval rating has gone up by 5%. So, fascinating reading in both papers on the front covers. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. everybody. Um, well, we're lucky to be joined right now by the AFL Fans Association President, Jerry Eamon. And we hear a lot in the media about the AFL and mostly, I guess it is, uh, we hear about the AFL Fans, uh, the AFL Players Association or the AFL itself. But I think, you know, what is a really important part as well, which is the Fans Association, which gives a voice to AFL fans. Um, so thanks a lot for joining us, Jerry. Pleasure. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how long has the Fans Association been going for and, and you know, what's its role? Sure. Um, it was founded in 2013 by a group of fans who felt that there needed to be a collective fan voice and someone to advocate for fans. Uh, the idea of such an association is not unprecedented. It, it already exists in different countries. It just hasn't existed here uh, in Australia, but uh, for example, in the UK, they've got a quite a formidable uh, fans association, which helps shape the narrative and, uh, I guess, stand up for fan rights. Um, I, I think the lack of a central voice was, was kind of was was doing fans a, um, a disservice. Uh, so. Yeah, that, that's really the history behind it. I, I wasn't there at, at its inception. I came along later when I started reading about it and um, I really liked what what it was doing. So I uh, threw my hat in the ring to get involved. I was listening to um, Robert Murphy speak uh, yesterday about one of the beauties of AFL is that it's been a game where the fans can go to a game together of different teams and yet still you know, see a commonality with each other and they can still hang out afterwards and, you know, all that kind of thing, which is unfortunately something that we don't see across all sports around the world. Um, but I guess, you know, that kind of shared camaraderie is something that means that an organisation like this can do really well and, and you know, have voices from, from all the clubs and to come together. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and you're right, it, it, it is a unique part of our game that fans of different teams sit together and often engage in quite funny banter. Uh, and, you know, there's there's men, women and kids at the footy, which is great, and we're all kind of mixed together. It's, it's one of the beauties of our game. Um, yeah, and, and look, probably because of that, that also doesn't feed into um, having really uh, fan bases that don't like to talk to each other. They, um, they're happy... 
I guess, pushing forward for greater fan rights and participation in the decision-making process. We've seen over the last couple of years, uh, I think, you know, one of the biggest changes to the AFL kind of landscape is the introduction of the AFLW. And, you know, that means that the game has really opened up for women to have a really vital role in, in the game. And it's also, you know, for, for young girls, something to aspire to, to want to be a part of the game. And, you know, I guess, how has the AFL Fans Association kind of integrated that, that change in, in the AFL? Yeah, sure. Um, well, we're really... We're really there to represent, you know, footy fans, whether they be of the AFL, AFLW, or both. Um, there hasn't been as much need to fight for AFLW fan rights simply because the game is not corporatised to the extent that the AFL is. Um, but, you know, we, we do hear feedback from, from fans of both games and, you know, half of our half of the AFL-FA committee are women and actually all of us follow the AFLW quite closely. I heard something a long time ago, um, which I hope is still true, that the one of the, the AFL has one of the highest amount of um, female um, members and uh, fans that go to games. And I think that, you know, like you said, that's, that's finally been kind of translated into the, the AFLW, but the representation of, like you said before, women, children, families, all going to the game together really makes for an atmosphere that needs to encapsulate that kind of demographic, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, that makes complete sense. I, I completely agree with you. Um, there's no doubt that if you go to a soccer game, for example, in the UK, um, the atmosphere will be terrific, but it's really just groups of men who all stand together in, uh, I guess, sectioned off according to what team they're going for. And there's a real beauty in our game that it, that it crosses all boundaries. And, and, and AFL has often been renowned for having a really high participation uh, in terms of membership um, of, of women. And, 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 and that's, you know, part of the beauty of the game. And, and now, um, you know, women's footy teams are, are really just bursting at the seams. The, the growth in the last two years since the AFLW started is, is really unprecedented. It, it, it's um, quite staggering. So on that, um, you know, of the match day experience, what is it, some of the feedback and um, ideas that the Fans Association has around the match day? Um, look, the AFL have talked about improving the match day experience and, and I guess from our perspective, what, what they've focused on is things like, um, you know, fireworks, having a, a thing for the, the players to run through, um, LED lights, music, etc. Whilst for us, what we'd prefer is that the AFL focuses on getting fans simply closer to the action. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is if you go, for example, to Etihad Stadium and you're sitting on level three um, whilst half of level two is empty but you're not allowed to sit there just because you're not allowed to sit there I think that's something that really takes away from the match day experience you know we're, we're really there at the end of the day to see the footy to get us as close to the footy as possible and uh, yes I mean I've been to games at the MCG where as well as um, at Etihad where 
you you know you've waited till half time in your area and you know you might want to go and sit in another spot to get a different view and there are thousands of empty seats but you're told that you can't sit there because you know that that they're a different different category of seating yet nobody's going to use that for the rest of the game but is that something that AFL you know may look at opening up you know say after quarter time or half time they will open up that kind of seating is that the kind of um, discussion that's being had um They've been resistant to, to change like that so far. Um, but, look, it is something that we'll push with them um, going forward. Um, but so far, I think they just they haven't really recognised it as a problem. Um, I don't think it's... I've, I've never heard it in any, any discussion or any media announcements, um, discussions with journalists, as, as something that's really on their radar. Um, and that's a shame. Yeah, I agree. What are some of the other things that um, you've been looking to get some conversation around? Oh, look, I guess for years we've been pushing on a greater allocation of tickets to the competing clubs that compete in the grand final. Um, you know, that at the moment it's um, the AFL, to its credit, increased the allocation from 30,000 to 34,000 uh, at the beginning of the year, though we'd, we'd really like to see it increased you know, further, we, we kind of want it to be nudging up towards 50. There's currently thousands of tickets that go to the non-competing clubs, which are then funnelled by those clubs into corporate packages. And, and we'd really like to claw that back and re- reward the fans that are that have, you know, stuck by their team for many, many years. And there are lots of other sort of little hidden um, costs around that. I know for my team last year that... Uh, as it was coming up to preliminary final weekend, you ha- could pay five dollars to go um, to go into a draw to potentially buy a ticket as a member, um, which is five dollars you don't get back. Unfortunately, my team didn't make the grand final, so you know that 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 kind of thing as well. It's kind of that money has just gone into the ether, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and and we've had people complain to us about that. It's a bit of a money making exercise, really. You get tens of thousands of people who pay five dollars for the for the pleasure of registering to be able to have the opportunity to get uh to enter what is essentially a lottery it, it does seem like you know that there's a fair bit of um i can't see how five dollars is justified to cover the costs it, it's clearly also quite a, a revenue generating exercise yeah i agree and I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's been a lot of discussion, I guess, about the game itself, but the, the numbers of people that are still attending the football is, you know, still a really massive amount, and I think people are just wanting to, to get there and, and support their team. But do you think there are things around uh, the affordability of tickets and the whole experience itself in terms of buying food and, and merchandise and things like that that limit people from being able to go? Yeah, look, I think... I mean, look, food's always been pretty expensive inside the stadium, which is a shame um, that it's not... I mean, not that I'm asking for it to be um, bargain basement price, but it's it's a shame that once you walk into the stadium, everything seems to have gone up from 100 metres when you were outside the stadium. In terms of affordability, I think tickets are still... The general admission tickets... The general admission tickets are still very affordable, but what's changed is where that lets you sit. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, you would get a pretty broad access to a stadium with general admission tickets. Now, 
what you find is there's this creep where that uh, those general admission bays are becoming smaller and smaller and further away from the ground and then you end up in a situation like we spoke about before where you're, you're sitting up there and you're going well I get that I got the cheap seats so I get that I'd be further away but I didn't think I'd be further away if all those seats in front of me were going to be empty. Yeah. Um, and so part of the, what's happening, um, unfortunately, this is going to air after the uh, the fan forum um, has taken place, but um, there's a fan forum for, for members and I guess, fans of, of AFL clubs to, to be involved in. Is it something that's happened before? No, it's the first time um, that we're doing this. Um, you know, it's an opportunity to really, um, you know... Get a hundred to two hundred people into a room and and just it's really a listening exercise. We're not really going to um, dictate what they tell us or try to guide them. We're going to ask some really broad questions and have moderators and scribes to really um, the moderators to facilitate discussion, the scribes to write down their answers. Um, but it, look, it'll be a really good exercise to really see what uh, what is on people's minds. And is that something that you hope will um, happen again in the future? Like yeah, a I mean, kind of event or? yeah, I think. Look, I think we'll review it after, and you know, have have a good think about how how to use utilize that kind of thing going forward. Whether it's yearly or uh, every two years, or whether we move to a more online model, I'm not sure. That that'll probably come out post review. Well, I, I think it's it's a the whole um, organisation. It seems to be something that will gel really well, I think, with 3CR listeners in terms of taking on board the concerns of, of the public and fans and, uh, the, you know, the kind of way that the forum is being approached by trying to gather the answers from people that are, you know, most interested and most at stake in, in these things as well. And, yeah, I think it's a really great model. Yeah, thanks, James. It, it's, it's something that we're really proud of and we're all volunteers at the Fans Association. All of us are volunteers and... We work really hard, so um, you know, for this for this association because we believe in it. Are there ways that uh, listeners can be involved in um, or support the fans association if they can't make the forum? Yeah, look, you can support us by following us on Facebook, becoming a member through our website. Membership is free. Um, the more members and followers we have, the, the more the AFL takes us seriously. Um, and if you so moved that you want to volunteer and and roll up your sleeves and get involved, then then send us an email. Our email addresses are available on the website, and I'm sure we'll find something for you to do. Well, I really appreciate having a chat with us today, Jerry. And perhaps we could um, find out about how what happened at the forum and and look at you know how those fans' thoughts might be um, engaged and implemented in the in the future. Sounds great, James. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. So, yeah, you are, listened, you are tuned in, I'm sorry, to 3CR Monday Breakfast. It is around 8 degrees 
outside. So if you're just uh, getting ready to leave the house, it's not warm, it's pretty chilly, um, there's a very low chance of rain today, it's going to be cloudy all day, there's wind at 3 kilometres an hour. Uh, and the forecast for the week uh, is looking pretty similar. Tomorrow a low of 4 and a top of 14. Today it's going to get up to 13 degrees. Wednesday it's going to be 3 degrees overnight and 13 max. Thursday oh, a very mild evening of 8 degrees and a max of 14. Friday it's going to rain most of the day it looks like. Uh, it's going to be 12 degrees. It a lovely day on Friday, and we've got 13 degrees on Saturday, and 13 degrees on Sunday, and 13 degrees on Monday. So our whole week is looking around those early teens. So rug up. Up next, uh, James had a chat to a man named Emmett, who is part of the uh, rider, uh, the shared the shared driver or the share rider, the rider driver driver rider uh, cooperative. Uh, it's a new uh, ride-share cooperative that's been set up for people who work uh, in that industry. Uh, and this is a conversation that James had with Emmett. Good morning, everybody. And uh, we are joined here by Emmett, who's uh, a member of the Rideshare Driver Cooperative, who are looking at some of the issues that for um, rideshare drivers and uh, I guess, you know, looking at, um, for drivers, and I, I think we want to have a discussion around how this um, cooperative came about, and I guess some of the issues for drivers, um, I think the cooperative is centred around Victoria at the moment, and perhaps will expand into other areas in the future, yeah. but yeah, so, so we have a little bit of discussion, I guess, around, you know, how the cooperative kind of works itself, mm -hmm. and, and how, did, how did it come about? Well... Basically, we're in a fledgling, fledgling stage at the moment. We haven't um, registered the cooperative per se, but we're looking at doing that. Um, one of the, the, the main issues that we saw was that drivers need to unite in some way. Um, driving for rideshare companies is very isolating. Um, drivers don't frequently get to talk to each other um, or interact in any way, shape or form. Um, so we, we, we realised that there was a need, first of all, to unite drivers around common issues and also... Um, further on down the track, uh, take take this industry away from from private corporations and and form platform cooperatives. Um, to uh, yeah, and how how did that like? Because you said it can be a really um, isolated sort of um, work work environment. Mm -hmm. How do you get people together to? Share uh, well, that our main our main um, medium at the moment is social media. Um, basically, uh, a lot of drivers use social media. There are also other drivers that don't, and we're looking at sort of finding out ways to reach out to those drivers. Um, I would say that the majority of um, Uber drivers or rideshare drivers in, in Melbourne do not connect via social media, um, but we're looking at um, empowering and uniting the ones that do so then they can sort of spread on the message to the ones that, that actually don't use social media. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, what... what what separates a cooperative? Like, is it? Are you looking at perhaps moving into, I guess, a union kind of model? It's something that I know for taxi drivers for a long time that lots of activists that are listeners involved in 3CR have campaigned around that kind of thing. Uh, well, there there are actually other rideshare driver groups uh, or associations that exist at the moment, but we saw them as not being very democratic. Mm -hmm. um, they're sort of uh, organising using sort of committees uh, of a handful of people, and they're not really reaching or giving the sort of regular driver on the street a, a bit of a voice to be able to contribute and also, um, yeah, 
you know so it's it's yeah it's sort of giving that sort of grassroots voice of, yeah. of regular drivers yeah and what what are the, some of the issues that you found that people the drivers are kind of voicing and wanting to seek action around the, the two big things are uh, pay yeah or you know financial reward for for the work that we do um safety is another huge one um and there's a few things uh that we're looking at um you know gst um having to pay gst from from first dollar earned um is another big one for a lot of drivers uh, so yeah and so what what would like what does the pay kind of structure look like i mean necessarily in, well, I, in terms of wages and things like that but how does it work in terms of what what a um a customer gives to to pay for their fare and then how is that distributed from uber Okay, so basically I've been driving for three years and when I first started driving for Uber, uh, the financial reward was quite you know, generous. Um, but because they don't cap their driver numbers, obviously the, 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 the pool gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the amount of money that you earn becomes less and less and less. Um, yep, so basically the the return to drive, Uber takes a cut of, for, for my personal situation, 25.5%. They take... Um, from each ride, and the uh, driver gets the rest, basically. Yeah. And what about in terms of other workplace conditions, superannuation, sick there pay, are holiday so pay? Nothing. So basically, if I get sick, um, I can't support myself at all. Um, there's no superannuation, and also the government is taking a hefty portion of GST from it as well. Well, you've seen over the I guess the past kind of year or so. Um, you know, a new hospo voices, a new union that has come out, and mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of attempted kind of changes to fix what, you know, a lot of those similar issues have happened in the hospitality mm-hmm. industry for a really long time. And this, you know, I guess, again, is another industry where, like you said, there's no holiday pay, there's no sick pay, no yep. superannuation. So even if at times you might be earning a lot of money, then the days where you're sick or for the future, you're left high. It's more so there's no minimum standards at all um, in, in, in the gig sector at all. Um, sort of, you know, these companies can come in and basically do whatever they want. Um, we're not necessarily asking to become employees of Uber, but we want minimum standards um, that are set across the board for um, rideshare drivers. So what do you think some of those standards will look like? Uh, well, basically to do with, with, with rates um, and also to do with uh, p- potentially having some sort of scheme in place. Uh, I know the Uber drivers or the rideshare drivers in London, Uber's actually offering them a package now um, of uh, that, that, that helps them with things like sick days and um, even maternity leave and things like that. Um, they've actually got a third-party insurance company to provide a package of benefits for them, um, and we really want to see that sort of thing brought in across the board globally. What are some of the relationships, I guess, if, if they exist with taxi drivers and um, people, you know, within <coughs> that that might have their own kind of um, collectives and, and different kind of, you know, maybe informal kind of things happening in there because it, it's been it you know it gets billed very much in the media as a um, rideshare versus taxi yeah. driver kind of thing it it, it it my personal experience is it used to be that way um, but I think a lot of rideshare drivers now are starting to realize why taxi drivers have such a hard time um, and also we're, we're sort of you know it's 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 sort of we're starting to realize that there's a lot in common between rideshare drivers and taxi drivers. Uh, the, the taxi model for a long time has been exploitative as well for the regular drivers. So it's it's, it's an issue of the, those that own the license plates versus those who drive as well. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things in common. And personally, I, I'm starting to see why 
taxis are so heavily regulated. Um, there was a need there to provide safety for people, for passengers and drivers. Um, so do you think that some of that kind of regulation, like you said, around conditions, but also safety uh, is something that perhaps yep. needs to come part of Right, so some some of the um, some of the safety features that we'd like to see introduced would be um, an SOS button um, on the actual application that could um, you know dial into emergency services at the touch of a finger. Basically, um, we have had issues of drivers in Victoria being assaulted um, and also interstate as well. Um, so that would be something that we'd like to see. Um, and I'd like to point out as well that Uber. Um, Uber in particular does have that function in other countries, so I'm not sure why. I mean, the technology doesn't seem very difficult to actually replicate that in other markets as well. Um, so I'm not sure why they haven't brought that in globally. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I guess uh, you think as a um, you know global company, like what what is the research that they do in, in each company uh, in each country to mm-hmm. allocate you know, quite a different model, and why isn't that yeah. kind of replicated? Well, that's that's worldwide. the thing. If you look across the board, the, the model is very different in different countries. There's no standardisation at all in terms of what they provide, um, in terms of the technology or in terms of benefits for for for, for drivers. Yeah. And, I, um, you know, there's a new um, function as part of the Uber. Is there is a, a, like a sharing um, yeah. part where passengers can... Um, become I guess three or four people can share a ride and mm-hmm. so that's cutting costs for the passenger mm-hmm. to um, on what that might be their normal ride mm-hmm. um, but how is that how's that being distributed to to a driver does they does that mean <clears throat> that they they're getting a fraction of, of what would be for fares potentially yeah the driver ends up worse off in terms of the the, the amount of money they get um, per trip um, Uber pool has been around for quite a long time in the states um, and all of the reviews from drivers have been very, very negative, um, not just to do with the, the, the financial reward, but also to do with safety. Uh, if you have people in a car, let's put the scenarios being sort of 2 a.m. On, on, on a Sunday morning, they're a little bit intoxicated, um, you could see there's a recipe there for potential disagreements and arguments to start. Um, and, you know, you're driving along on a road on a rainy night, for example, and someone starts getting into a fight in your back seat, um, what do you do in that situation? Uh, there's no, you know, if the driver were to get involved, what are the, what's the legal recourse um, there? Like it's, it's very grey and. I guess um, you know it reminds me of a similar situation of working in a bar where you have people that you need to talk down who are hostile or drunk and things like that. Except they're in your your car and and you know it's much more difficult to. It's a very confined space. Yeah, and escort escort them out. Um, but, but you know, when you do work in a bar or work as security, you're trained to kind of deal with those kind of things and you have, a, I guess, a certain kind of responsibility that mm-hmm. goes with that. It seems that <clears throat> Uber drivers um, have a responsibility but without the training. Exactly. One of the major issues uh, with that company in general is the lack of training and education, not just for drivers but also for riders as well. Um, they don't really provide the riders much education as to, you know, I'll give you another example. Um, quite often riders will request a ride to be picked up on the side of a road where there's nowhere to stop legally. Um, and Uber does not want to educate riders on these sorts of things, um, you know, how, where, where to wait or, you know, what to do in a particular situation. Uh, it's always up to the driver to sort of sort it out themselves without any prompting or advice at all. 
I think one of the things that would be, uh, you know, well known to a lot of 3CR listeners is that, you know, the Uber, its company and the head of, um, you know, have got a pretty despicable kind of rate in terms of not just how they treat workers, but, you know, support for Donald Trump. You know, there was a situation with the Muslim ban where, um, you know, there was a Uber surge and, um, you know, all these things that at different times called for uh, boycotts of using Uber. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that doesn't help the drivers at all. Um, so I guess what kind of what kind of thing can we as potential passengers of, of Uber and other um, rideshare mm-hmm. uh, organisations, like what, how, what kind of role do you think we can play in that? Well, I suppose understanding the nature of the work. Um, you know, rideshare drivers are some of the lowest paid workers in Australia um, and quite often there is a level of expectation on drivers to perform um, things that are outside of you know the the the, the what what the, what's really should be expected of them. Uh, mm. We're there to provide a safe ride from A, a to B. Um, we're not there to sort of you know make your day. Um, you know we're not there to sort of. You know, it's, it's a simple service, and we're getting paid quite low for for that service. Um, and also uh, as well, understanding um, that quite often uh, you'll get you know people that will be aggressive and angry. Um, sort of understanding that, that that's no way to treat a fellow human being. Um, and, it, and if you are in that sort of situation, you really shouldn't be getting getting a ride <laughs> yeah, yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, so I, I think that, I guess it's about the targeting as well of the, of you know, to certainly criticise the, the company and the way it treats its workers and obviously the kind of political implications of the mm-hmm. um, head of the organisation and things as well. But, yep. but like you say, it's about supporting trying to campaign and support for drivers' rights as well. Yep, yep. And looking for alternatives as well. I mean, one of the reasons why we, we sort of developed this, this cooperative is, is, you know, we, we want to provide, potentially provide, um, you know, a, a, a ride share, a, a driver-owned model mm-hmm. uh, that, that doesn't sort of exploit workers. So there's been a few examples internationally of, of some of those um, group start-up and mm-hmm. to kind of rival Uber in the sense of where the... Um, cooperative is not just uh, of drivers of Uber and things like that, but mm-hmm. they become its own organisation itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you know, a worker-owned model basically is, is, is where, where, I mean, a lot of these applications are getting um, cheaper and cheaper to make. Um, when Uber started out, it probably was a big investment for them to actually develop this application, but as technology progresses, it's getting easier and easier to actually put these things in the hands of the people and get them to, to basically operate and run it themselves democratically. So I guess, you know, the question around that is hopefully, you know, in that kind of situation, then you want to be paying workers uh, a much better wage and, and conditions and things like that. How does that cost come back onto uh, passengers? Well, yeah, it, it, it doesn't really because... Um, Uber takes a lot of money out of the out of their cut, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, if 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 all of the 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 um, if all of the 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 incomes going directly into operation of the the actual business, then costs shouldn't be that much different. Well, that sounds like a model that everyone should support. Yeah. If um, instead of going to a corporation, which many people have lots of um, you know problems with, that it means that the everyone is kind of getting a, a better ride. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and for for a decent cost as well. So yeah, I guess yeah. Just before we kind of um, finish up, are there any other kind of things you think that um, you'd like to let people know about how they can 
support the cooperative or, um, you know, hopefully there's some drivers out there that are listening at the moment? Yeah, so we have a Facebook page, uh, the Rideshare Drivers Cooperative. Um, you can just search that on Facebook um, and, and, and join up. Um, and also another another major thing is uh, we, we really want drivers and riders not to use Uberpool if possible um, because of the nature of the service. If they, if they want to actually look in um, to what it's done in the past in the United States, just Google that as well because there's some horror stories about using the service. So, yeah, drivers and riders, please stay away from Uberpool. Yeah, well, it sounds like um, that that particular part of the service kind of wraps up a lot of the issues raised in terms of uh, safety for um, passengers and drivers mm-hmm. and it even further kind of cuts to uh, drivers' wages. Exactly. Yeah, we want conditions to get better, not worse. We want to stop the race to the bottom, yeah. Well, uh, it sounds like a really... Uh, I think it's it's been a really interesting... Um, you know, the whole rideshare economy and everything is, is, you know, kind of new, I think, for a lot of people listening, particularly on 3CR, and it's a really interesting and exciting development to have a cooperative coming out of that, and I'm sure all 3CR listeners will um, wish it very well and um, hopefully um, find out more along the way about how to support the campaign. No worries. Thanks for the opportunity. Cheers. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and that was a really interesting conversation James was having with Emmett from the uh, driver, other rideshare drivers cooperative, um, which I think is a really interesting response to some of the um, terrible conditions, exploitation of workers that we have seen revealed within um, these these new technology industries. Uh, up next, it is time for Over the Wall, and this week, Peter is uh, having a look into what life is like for people living in the trial areas of the cashless welfare card. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Could you say your name and, and the group, you know, so listeners know who you are? And... My name is Catherine Wilkes and I run the No Cashless Welfare Debit Card Australia Facebook page and I also run the No Cashless Debit Card Hinkler Region Facebook page and I have not just myself but a whole group of other people including the Say No 7 page that help with fighting against the cashless debit card. Some of the comments that have come out of Kalgoorlie from the Kalgoorlie page because we have the No Cashless Debit Card Kalgoorlie and Surround page on Facebook and a lot of people are posting their comments there of the difficulties that they're having. Yeah. Things like bills not being paid on time, some bills just not being paid at all, people copying bank fees and then copying another load of bank fees because they can't get it fixed in time. Plus you've got your other usage fees as well on the card anyway. People are confused as to what balances are in their accounts because the balance will say one thing and something else. It's not real-time budgeting, so therefore they may think a bill's gone out and it hasn't gone out. Is that because it's like on a, a pay pass system where it takes a, a few days for the transaction to actually register? Similar sort of thing, yeah, because it's more like an overgrown PayPal card because they're not a bank. is not a bank, so they can't transact the same way as a bank, so there is days delays. People put in... You can get extra $200 a month cash out. So they put in for that. That takes two days to go through to their bank normally for any cash transfers. One lady was only able to shop on online shopping at Woolworths and they wouldn't let her do it because online shopping for grocery shopping with Woolworths was not on the list of approved 
things that you can use the card for. So she complained to them and they said, well, can you bring us in three months' worth of dockets to prove that this is how you do your shopping? And she actually did have three months' worth of receipts. So she did that. She was then approved to be able to spend up to $250 a month on groceries. Up to $250 a month on groceries. That's ridiculous, you know? And her comment was she spends that a fortnight on groceries for a family of four. That's one of the difficulties. People are finding out that the council doesn't take the card for their rates. Basically, you've got to hand over the account numbers for your accounts to Indu for them to set it up. Or you can use BPay and, and do it that way through Indu. It's causing a lot of grief. The people that are on that card in Kalgoorlie are ages up to 65 years of age. And they're expected to go out and buy a laptop or a smartphone or whatever. They can't afford the technology to be able to run the app. They weren't given any notice of this. A lot of people got the card before they got the letter. There's a lot of issues with Kalgoorlie. At the moment, the fight with Hinkler region is just sheer pig-headedness on the ministers because they want it no matter what. You know, they've got the three trial sites that were legislated. And what's the latest on, on the ground for expansion of the three trial sites? It went through the House of Reps last week, which we knew it would because we didn't have the numbers to beat it. However, it's gone down to the Senate and now there's a new Senate inquiry that has been set down. Senate inquiry are accepting submissions until the 20th July and then it's reporting on the 14th of August. So it's in limbo again and it's gone to a third Senate inquiry. The problem is that the people who chair them are the LNP. <laughs> so they're not listening. Like the last one, they recommended the expansion to Hinkler but they didn't get it through because of the changes in the legislation that the government was trying to push through to make it a permanent program. And they had to back off from that and they had to go back to the original three trial sites legislation. This is a new legislation just for Hinkler. Seems a quite a sneaky approach by the government that they'll push as hard as they can. If they can't get what they want through on legislation, then they'll find other ways to keep the goal of permanent expansion of the Inju card, you know, rolling out? Well, it's like anything. It's creep, creep, creep. They did the same with the basics card. It's creep, creep, creep. And it just keeps creeping along, going region by region. Before you know it, you'll have the whole of regional Australia on it if, if it's not stopped. They did say at the very beginning they wanted the whole of regional Australia on it. It's causing grief, it's causing debt, and people don't like having their credit rating stuffed around missing bills or, or going into debt? It's due to payments not being paid on time because when people have their direct debits set up through their bank account, they get into a routine, they've got that money there, it's all set up. You can't have normal direct debits with the cashless debit card. You've got to transfer it over to Indu and Indu have got to approve it. You know, They take over the account number of that account for you and then they pay it. And then they, they tell you in their terms and conditions that they take no responsibility for any late payments or any fees that you may incur or any default that you may incur due to their late payments. Yet they take on all the money. Yeah. Yes, but people are now finding out that their good credit ratings are being absolutely destroyed. One lady, she's on a disability support pension. She has a Booper private health insurance scheme. Yeah. They've stuffed that payment up over three times. How can you do that to people? I mean, people have to pay these bills. 
And so yeah, when people get in that situation, as you, as you said, and to make it clear for the listeners, if they're not familiar with the cashless welfare card, that the cashless card is the card itself, and, and Indu, I-N-D-U-E, is the company responsible for providing and, and managing this card, yes. and, and into the card goes people's welfare payments. So yeah, the it, 80% goes onto the card, which is run by Indu. 80%, it, yeah, of people's yes. welfare payments. So if they're in that situation, can you describe what could the experience be like for a person, like a, a payment hasn't gone through, do they have to get on the phone to Indu, do they have to sometimes prove something that hasn't been paid when it's actually the company's fault? Because the reason why I say that is if the company's taking in their disclosure statement no responsibility for those type of errors, then it seems that the onus is on the person receiving the welfare payments to prove it. They have to prove it. And if they go into, at the moment, there is an on-ground office in Kalgoorlie. So if they go in there and they make the complaint, they've got to be able to prove that they've been paying these bills in the past. They've got to take in all their paperwork. The onus is all on the recipient. The only recourse you've ever got if they make a mistake is you've got to keep your receipt. But, oh, it's the strain. I, I can't imagine what it would be like myself to have my whole life taken over, all my bills taken over, and then when they stuff them up, I'm left with the stress. People are left with the stress, the financial strain. And on top of that, they've also got to live with the stigma in their town because anybody who's issued that card has been branded a drug addict, an alcoholic and the like by the way that this has been marketed to get public support. And I can tell you now, the people that are on it do not like being branded that way. They're very angry about it because it's not fair. And the reason why they're being branded is that the government says that Indu and the cashless card are an effective policy because it decreases the rates of alcohol and, and, and drug usage. I can't see how that can be because a piece of plastic can't cure alcoholism exactly. and it won't cure drug addiction. And people who have those problems need health supports, not a big stick, because a big stick, they'll just go around and break in somewhere or they'll switch to something else. They'll find alternative ways. You're hearing on the ground more pressure upon families in situations where the Indu card is, is causing a, a lack of money to be available? Oh, absolutely. I've heard from Kananara and it's a real mess up there. Sudan has still got huge rates of crime happening, break-ins. I saw a post online recently. A person who was on the Indu card was robbed by somebody else on the Indu card <laughs> in the street, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's bad. It is increasing crime rates. It's not fair to impose that on communities. Like, for instance, the Hinkler region, before we were able to look up the monthly statistics of the crime, up until about July last year, and we were following those statistics, and I'd have to say hats off to the police department up there because they've managed to keep drug offence crimes really low, which means something's working that they're doing. Do you know what I mean? Yep. In order to keep that sort of thing down. And it tells me that you know there was no need for this draconian attack on everybody. This is a public service announcement. And number two. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. That was Over the Wall. And we've just come up to 8am. Still a very chilly 9 degrees outside and they're going to get up to 14 degrees today. Uh, and up next, we're going to uh, hear an interview from In Your Face, 3CR's very long-running LGBTQI affairs program. Uh, this is Alison Thorne. Alison Thorne is a veteran uh, 
LGBTQI liberationist, and she was chatting with uh, In Your Face's James McKenzie about how exactly did radical socialist feminists support something as mainstream as marriage in the recent same-sex marriage debate. So this is Alison Thorne and James McKenzie in conversation. I've got a very special guest in the studio. Alison Thorne is a veteran LGBTIQ liberationist and activist. She's a founding member of Radical Women in Melbourne and the managing editor of the Freedom Socialist Organiser. She'll be chairing the forum Reviving the Spirit of Stonewall in Australia and around the globe to commemorate Stonewall's anniversary later in June. Welcome to In Your Face, Alison. It's great to be here, James. Thank you so much. Uh, How would you define an LGBTIQ liberationist? That is a... Wonderful question, because when I first got involved in the gay liberation movement in the late 70s, pretty much all the activists at that time considered themselves liberationists. And uh, what we meant by liberation was upending a society which was based on homophobia, based on transphobia, sexism, racism. We meant liberating every aspect of ourselves. We meant going beyond um, the gender binary. We meant uh, challenging the ideas of monogamy and the patriarchal institution of the family. And marriage. And marriage, and marriage, and um, like it's interesting because our forum that we're hosting to celebrate Stonewall is actually called After Yes, and um, we will be framing our um, discussion in the whole context of the long battle for marriage equality, and the two organisations that are hosting the event, Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party, we have a very um, dialectical approach to this whole question of marriage. We were involved in um, some of the helping organise some of the earliest uh, marriage equality rallies after um, the Howard government imposed its um, same-sex marriage ban. And like people asked us, hey, you're socialist feminists, you're LGBTIQ liberationists. What are you doing supporting an institution um, like marriage? And what did you say? And what we said is we said that we support same-sex marriage equality because it will have the same kind of impact that things like uh, no-fault divorce laws, women um, entering the workforce en masse, it would have the same impact that those things had on marriage. And by chipping away at that patriarchal, heterosexist institution that we'd help um, turn marriage into its opposite. And, you know, like that's very much what we're hoping to see. The forum, of course, is is celebrating, if you like, the Stonewall anniversary. It's commemorating that. Mm-hmm. Tell us what happened at Stonewall on that fateful night in New York City in 1969. Okay, well, that fateful night, like in many ways it was little different um, to, you know, the weekend before and the weekend before that, what we actually had was we had um, 
a very homophobic police force. We had um, bar owners who were in it for the profit rather than um, the love of community. And we had people um, who were out wanting to have a good time. Butch Dykes, drag queens of colour, working class people, socialising at the Stonewall Inn and just wanting to have a good time. And what they got was yet yet another police raid. But this time the patrons snapped. They'd had enough and they fought back. And really the whole story um, of Stonewall is a legendary one, but I think it is important not to see the Stonewall riots as a single event. The Stonewall riots were part of the context of the time. They were part of the 60s. And in fact, there were earlier instances where um, LGBTIQ people fought back um, against harassment in bars that are are less known. An interesting one um, took place in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco at um, the Compton's Diner. And it was a diner um, run by Jean Compton and it was um, frequented um, by many um, gender-diverse people and young queers, I guess, using 21st century terminology. They'd have obviously used different terms back then. Um, And there was a, a riot at the Compton's Diner three years before the Stonewall riot. And... What happened at Stonewall, what happened at Compton's was in the context of a civil rights movement. It was in the context of a movement uh, fighting um, against the imperialist war in Vietnam and it was in the context of a women's liberation movement. And so the LGBTIQ people were not operating in a, a vacuum. They were like influenced... Um, you know, by what was happening around them at the time. And that very much um, fueled the events at Stonewall. But what was important about the events at Stonewall was that they sparked the imagination, that they sparked resistance, and uh, very quickly gay lib emerged first in New York, then on the west coast of the US, um, then here um, in Australia. And uh, culminating, of course, in 1978 with uh, with Mardi Gras and, and, and then the impetus that that um, gave the community as well. And, of course, that was a riot too. Exactly, exactly. And um, one of the things that our event that we're, we're also doing, we're not only paying tribute to people like um, Martha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and those who led the fight back at Stonewall, but we're also paying tribute to our very own 78ers. And wasn't it inspiring um, to see the 78ers marching in Mardi Gras this year and so many of the amazing interviews that was that were done by those veteran members of our community hearken back to that very spirit of liberation which we're wanting to inspire with our Stonewall celebration. 
So in 2018, is the LGBTI community at an activism crossroads where the two main forks in the road are sexuality and gender identity? Are there other forks in the road? Well, um, I, I think all of the forks unite, really. Um, we, it, like our community is one that is not just sexually diverse and gender diverse. It's also um, a community that's racially diverse. Um, it is a community um, that is uh, divided on class. You know, that, that all of these issues are also um, things that intersect. And present opportunities as That's well. It. Because That's Because of that diversity. Exactly. You know, like that they do indeed um, present opportunities. And if we really focus on LGBTIQ liberation and if our vision is a vision of every single LGBTIQ person being liberated, then we're going to be touching on so many issues for um, First Nations like LGBTIQ people, for, for the sister girls from Tiwi Island. How can they be liberated without their land? And it, like, it is very interesting because I um, started my political journey in the late 70s and uh, I started out um, concerned with um, my oppression as a lesbian and diving in, like into that and asking all of those questions, where does oppression come from? led me to feminism, led me to socialist feminism and led me to having an all-encompassing view of what it is that we're fighting for. We're chained to Alison Thorne from the Freedom Socialist Party. Alison, post-yes vote, is the LGBTI community at risk of stagnation and just becoming another economic unit defined and exploited by commercialism and capitalism? Oh, what a splendid question. You like that one? Um, to ask, I do, like, I do like that question. Um, but my answer is that I, like, I hope not. So do uh, I. <laughs> because it's depressing if it's true, isn't it, it? It is. It's very depressing if it's true. But but uh, the, the like the struggle for um, marriage equality, it's really something um, that mobilised um, a whole new generation. I got I would be so inspired when I'd go along to the rallies and just um, see so many people um, who were so much younger than me. And uh, that was fantastic and it was inspiring. So you're very optimistic about the future of queer activism, by I, the sounds look, of it. I, I am. I am. And that's a good thing. Because, like, like, I'm thinking that what was inspiring all those people out on the street um, fighting for for marriage equality, for so many people, it was so much more than the right to say, I do, it was uh, about no bourgeois politician like he's going to tell me, you know, like what I can do with my life, you know, like that there was that real sense and like it very much became a defining battle between on 
the, the, the one hand, people out on the streets fighting for marriage equality, and on the other hand, the dinosaurs who it took 13 years kicking and screaming um, before we, like, even got that terrible marriage survey and I mean really. And they're still kicking they might not be screaming as much but they're still kicking behind the scenes aren't they with their religious freedom to discriminate They they are indeed and I think um, the Ruddock Review that that's um, That's a threat One of the things it is it's a Trojan horse um, and I think A Trojan horse for? Like a a, a Trojan horse for the the right wing to to bring back um, discrimination in the guise of religious freedom. And because we, it is a right-wing movement, isn't it? That, look, there is. There is a right-wing movement out there um, and the far right um, uses a whole lot of things um, to try and mobilise from law and order hysteria to Islamophobia, but they just as much um, use issues um, such as anyone who challenges the, the gender binary. You know, That's like, a big issue for them and that's why they were so... And still are, so anti-safe schools. Like, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And there are just so many issues for us to be fighting around. And there are um, small but dangerous um, outright fascist and neo-Nazi groups um, who are out there in the community right here in Melbourne trying to build a mass movement and those very same groups um, have their allies that are organising in the parliament as well. And one of the things that we think is so very, very important is that we need to understand that every reform that we win is only as good as how long we can actually hang on to it. And as somebody who has uh, studied um, quite a lot the whole issue of the far right and fascism, I um, I get um, I get overwhelmed almost when I think of what happened in Germany, the Weimar Republic. It had such a vibrant um, gay and lesbian community. It had bars. It had an extremely um, popular, widely distributed lesbian magazine called The Girlfriend. Um, It was an extremely um, well-developed homosexual community in Weimar, Germany. And that was a community um, that was crushed uh, by the growth of the far right. So this is something that we need to take uh, very seriously. And when we talk about reviving the spirit of Stonewall, what we're talking about is reviving that resistance and fight back. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast here on 855am on your dial or perhaps you're listening online 3cr.org.au or to a podcast at a later date. We're just listening to Alison Thorne in conversation with James McKenzie from In Your Face, a really fascinating conversation about how to keep the radical in LGBTIQ politics. 
Uh, and I just wanted to let all our listeners know that the station, obviously it's been Radiothon the last few weeks, and the station has already raised more than $180,000, which is pretty amazing. And a lot of those, the vast majority of those are small donations from individual listeners, people who love the station, love the kind of content that we put out. You can still make a donation if you call the, the station, 94198377, or you can SMS on 0488-930-855. So that's 0488-930-855. And the phone number again was 94198377. We only have $70,000 to go to reach our $250,000 target for this year. So please get on the line before the end of the financial year and um, and make a donation to keep uh, all of these voices on air and keep fighting for our right to our microphone. Uh, for our final story this morning, I'm joined in the studio by Sam Quinlan, who is um, a long-term worker in the hospitality industry. Uh, Sam has worked in almost every position from kitchen hand to head chef for over a decade in restaurants and bars across Melbourne, some of which would be well-known to our audience, places like Mario's on Brunswick Street, The Grace Darling and Mr. Scruff's on Smith Street, Sourdough Kitchen in Seddon, to just name a few. He's worked at some very high-end restaurants like a long chin at, at a Crown as well. Uh, he's therefore pretty well placed to talk about the many issues that have been coming up in the media recently, issues like penalty rates, which disappear at the end of this month, issues like wage theft, and issues like abuse and bullying, which are quite um, specific to that industry in particular. Um, but today, instead of uh, standing over a hot stove, he's working for Uniting Care Hotham Misham in their Food for Thought program. Sam, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about your work right now? What does the Food for Thought program do? Sure. So, it's a program that tackles food insecurity among young people uh, currently in school uh, in the northwestern, inner northwest of Melbourne. Um, generally, refugee communities recently arrived, migrants um, from the Horn of Africa specifically. Um, uh, a lot of the, um, the problem we're tackling is really... Um, when we've got kids with a uh, few skills in especially Western cooking who arrive here with little support, um, sometimes even staying in apartments by themselves, just, wow. just teenagers, um, <clears throat> and sometimes even without cooking facilities. Um, and we, so we aim to give them a bit of the, well, firstly the food, but also we're aiming to upskill them as well and teach them cooking classes. So they, we often give them, uh, a bit of a hamper of um, fresh fruit and vegetables, some perishable, non-perishable items, and then, um, yeah, and then teach them. We're in the process of trying to teach them how to cook some of the meals that will really go a long way and um, keep them in school, keep them attentive, and mm. hopefully get them into TAFE or uni. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty important to have a meal before you start school, I would think. And it must be a – like I've known you for a long time, full disclosure, and I, I imagine it's a big – change um, to go from the hectic environment of um, professional she cooking and, and, and chefery, if that's even a word, <laughs> uh, uh, to this uh, type of work. Has it been a, a nice change for you? It's been really nice, actually. Um yeah, I, I do enjoy the stress in some ways in the kitchen. As I was telling you off air before, um, it's almost like a zen thing with short order cooking. When when it's going well, um, it's an amazing feeling. It's very meditative and and fun. <clears throat> 
but also um, when it's going badly, it's probably your, it's the last place you'd want to be and you kind of feel very stuck and, <laughs> and uh, with no real way out of a bad service. So um, I'm really enjoying not having being placed in that kind of situation um, on a weekly basis anymore. Yeah, you've, you've worked at some of Melbourne's, you know, like really well-known night spots, institutions, mm-hmm. and, you know, without being specific and ending us in, sure. you know, in court or anything like that, um, how would you describe the culture in the hospitality industry in in Melbourne? Um, what are some of the features of it that are that are that are universal across wherever you work? And what are some you know what does good culture look like in a kitchen, and what does bad culture look like in a kitchen? Sure. Well, look, I think firstly um, the culture is pretty problematic as. Um yeah, as recent events have kind of shown us both here and overseas with some of the most famous chefs um, and their problems that they've um, obviously still been struggling with after all these years. I'm thinking of, um, yeah, the most famous death we can think of recently, Anthony Bourdain. But, um, yeah, look, I think that... um, the, 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 there are a lot of problems. Um, bullying and stuff is part of it. Um, wage theft and general um, disrespect between levels of management and even you know um, the team members in in kitchens. But a really good team feels like a family, and it feels like um, yeah, there's a real sense of pride and. Um, uh, yeah, cooperation in, in, in trying to get the food out, in trying to maintain the kitchen. Um, there's, yeah, but as soon as, uh, especially as soon as a name, a big name comes in or something like that, I find that, um, the politics get really stifling. The culture becomes very toxic and it becomes more about an ego trip and about, um, yeah, various, uh, mm, conspicuous, um, kind of, Oh, it's how, how to say it's 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 difficult to put into it, words, but is it that people within the industry are more, and I think this is across a number of industries, but they're more interested in advancing their own career and their own position within the hierarchy. It's a very hierarchical environment. That's exactly right, yeah. uh, and it becomes less about you know the sharing of food, the breaking of bread, you mm. know the you know the the things that are wonderful about mm. working in a restaurant, um, and more about. Setting, setting yourself up above others. That's it, yeah. uh, they seem to me. You know, I've worked a little in in hospitality over the years, and they are very hierarchical. They are incredibly. It's almost like the army, especially at these high levels. Um, which you know, I could kind of work within, but I never really enjoyed. Uh, but as soon as I could see that it wasn't about the output anymore, it wasn't about putting out really high quality, um, hot, <laughs> clean food, and more about about um, making snarky remarks about uh, some person while they're not there, while being nice to them while they are there kind of thing. Like that kind of, you know, backhanded kind of um, approach really, you know, it doesn't help anyone and it leads to things like bullying. It leads to things like, um, yeah, like horrible harassment and things that um, can have really despicable consequences and um Mm. yeah but what is what is heartening is that laws are catching up with these problems a bit you know the bullying there was that horrible um i think it was a cafe in um camberwell was it yeah Yeah, so um a few years ago that you know now we have legislation that is strong that is um yeah hopefully is acting as a deterrent and a way of changing that culture a little bit um why mm. do you think that is a part of 
that's something that I just is just so different from every other industry. The way that chefs talk to one another mm. during service, the way that they talk to wait staff, mm. is at times brutal and really graphic yeah. and and, um, and very personal. It can become at, mm-hmm. at times, and you know I think that case in question of the young girl that was mm. just horrendously bullied, you yeah. know, to, to the point of self harm. And um, what do you think it is about? You know, you likened it to the army. There, the kind of you know, yep. is there a is it is it is it a macho masculine environment that the, the kitchen as well definitely can be. My first head chef, um, who trained me, um, was an amazing woman, and um, yeah, I still really look up to her. Uh, but so I don't think it has to be macho, but I think it does because of the stress involved. And like I was talking about, a good service versus a bad service in the back of a chef's mind at any time, whether they're management or a, te- a normal team member, is that it could turn at any moment. I think so. There's this real element of um it's working well now or you know some days it's really you're really elated and everyone's happy and no one's being mean or whatever in the in the kitchen but other times you feel that intense pressure um that it could all go pear-shaped any moment and the horrible thing about especially short order cooking and service is that um one thing going wrong especially early on especially when you've got a lot of bookings uh, can lead to a real nightmare of a night. And it's very easy to push blame around, I think, at the end of the mm. day. So, you know, it's it's very easy to say it's this wait staff member or this, you mm. know, um, when really that's not fair. It's it's how the kitchen is set up. It's how if a good, ki- a good kitchen set up well won't have that many problems like that. It will not get caught in the weeds or whatever that term um, is, you know, that often. It will, it will happen sometimes, but with um, – especially with good management on board, Mm. at the time they will go bam 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 and it will be fixed straight away so um yeah it's all about systems really talking about management we, there has been some shocking revelations in the press about very you know high profile chefs mm. dramatically underpaying their staff yeah what's your experience been like when you you know you're, you've you've got a lot of experience you've been mm. in high level roles in various kitchens what so, about yeah. when you when you come to start a new job mm-hmm how are the negotiations around pay, around overtime? Like, is there specific uh, promises made by, by the organisation about the hour? You know, I, mm. I, I know other chefs, you know, that are regularly working 70 hours a week. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether they are paid for I'm those sure 70 hours. Yeah. What's um, your experience been? Look, I, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. I've had some really good experiences. Like, for example, if I may um, sh- make a shout out, Mario's was a fantastic place to work. They were always um, really supportive and very much above board and, and great. But um, I've had some shockers as well. Like, I, um, I've signed a contract um, that where I was committing to, I think it was 44 hours a week. I had a lot of other obligations, including family and study. Um, so I made very clear that I had to, you know, I, I had to not do above those contracted hours. And they were fine about it before the place opened. <laughs> but as soon as it was open, I was doing almost double those hours. And uh, I almost had a breakdown um, trying to fulfill those obligations mm. to my young children, my, my the degree I was trying to finish. Um, you know, so, you know, that kind of, I ended up um, getting a little bit litigious at the end and demanding overtime pay for what I had done because I, um, it was more about what I'd given up in terms of my family time and the time I had to study um, and sleep, not to mention that I demanded restitution for because, you know, it, it is very unfair sometimes the, um, the pressure that's put on uh, sometimes middle management within the kitchen to, you know, um, I found that my superior at the time really just um, 
partied basically while I ran the kitchen for them. Um, and yeah, it was very unfair. So I think that sometimes it can be, um, yeah, terribly, um, yeah, the power dynamics can be really wrong and really off. And that, you know, that is often reflected in, in wages over time contracts. And yeah, I've also, yeah, had some very criminal things done to me over the years. Um, especially working in, um, more like the tourism sector of the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. I think it's even higher turnover than um, the normal industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a lot of, it's very much a um, predatory area mm -hmm. of, of, the, of the industry. Yeah. There is a, t a sense sometimes that the larger the service provider, mm -hmm. the, la the, the larger amount of people that they are providing food for, you, mm -hmm. know, so, you know, somewhere like a, a very big function center, that yes. that's where it can get, you know, they use a lot of um, labor hire companies mm -hmm. and things and it can get quite murky. Yeah. I want to ask, you know, talking about, you know, the impacts on your family life, the impacts on your time. It's sure. very topical at the moment. Penalty rates are going to be cut at the end of this month. Mm. You know, the laws that were passed last year, it comes into effect at the end of this financial year. At the same time, you've got uh, Turnbull and his fellow parliamentarians who have given themselves a $200 a week pay rise on the same date. How, how important are penalty rates to hospitality workers and how often are they paid currently? Mm. Very seldom are they paid currently. I've, I can count on one hand, it, yeah, pretty much almost a couple of fingers. What, um, <laughs> which places I've been, I've been paid above award or at award even. Um, but yeah, they are very important, especially for front of house. I think more so than um, than cooks because yeah, cooks generally, you know, even though it's illegal, they generally agree to a salary and they're usually pretty happy with it although sometimes they do too many hours and if a boss is fair they'll usually pay a little bit of overtime and tips to mm. that to those staff if they value them and mm. so in the kitchen I think it's a little bit a little bit different okay yeah in the kitchen I think it's a bit different and that people are more willing to um to take a bit of a hit as long as they're getting enough to live on you know Whereas for wait staff, it's a little bit more casualized and they do really rely on those rates. So I'm not, yeah, as a, as a cook, I'm not as well placed to kind of say I've always needed them and I've always, you know, demanded them because I haven't been able to. And it's just been a bit of a, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a thing where it's, it's a lip service thing that's, that's, that's kind of uh, played out too. But mm. yeah. Look, we're, we've run out of time, unfortunately. I think it's a longer conversation we could have. I'd be really interested um, in another time to know how uh, unions are welcomed into these workplaces because so many of them are small businesses, you mm. know, they're, they're, they're quite tight-knit like a family. I wonder how easy it is when things are going wrong to get help. But unfortunately, we are completely out of time. Thank you very much for coming in this morning, Sam, and talking about your experiences. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, that has been Monday Breakfast for uh, June the 25th. And up next, as always on 3CR, we have Women on the Line. <laughs> 